Hi, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. If you are a survivor, a caregiver, a researcher, a support group leader, or a local business helping the stroke and brain injury community, Stroke Focus is offering a number of exciting programs. Get details at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, a part of the Stroke Focus Group. I'm here today with Dr. Elizabeth Lynch, and we're going to talk about her research and what she is doing. She is an accomplished researcher for stroke, and she is now a research fellow at the famous Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. She is specifically focused on improving health service delivery, particularly to people with stroke who are participating in rehabilitation. Uh, She is currently investigating ways in which stroke rehabilitation researchers translate their research findings and investigating different aspects of facilitation in health service. So Liz, Tell us a little bit about your research or a little bit about your background. Sure. So I've got a background in physiotherapy. So I worked for many years in inpatient rehabilitation. And so in Australia, the way it's structured is that when someone has a stroke, they'll go to a stroke unit. And then after about five days to two weeks, the people that need inpatient rehabilitation will normally be transferred to a different campus, a different hospital. And so I worked at the secondary hospital. So it was where people would be inpatients that stay overnight, but it wasn't the acutely acutely unwell people. Um, And so I worked in stroke rehab for many, many years. Um, A lot of people would tell us how they were missing out on rehab. And so I did did kind of have a blinkered view because I only saw the people that got there. Every, every now and again, if I worked in the acute hospital, I'd see a whole lot of people that I thought would benefit from rehab but actually weren't being referred to rehab or if they were being referred, they weren't being accepted to rehab. And so then they would often go to nursing homes. Um, so the research I did was looking at, um, while I was working as a clinician, I was party to um, a much bigger group of work that was being run nationally about developing a way to assess the rehabilitation needs of people after they've had a stroke. And so um, a big party that I was just one tiny little person in this big party developed an assessment for rehabilitation tool. And so this was a, um, it was meant to be patient-centred and evidence-based so that there would be a lot of transparency so that um, the same person, if different people saw the same person with a stroke, they'd come up with the same recommendation as to whether that person needed rehab or not and so it was based upon um, there were 14 domains of patient function and so patient um, people with stroke were very involved in determining how this tool was laid out as clinicians we tend to do a physio assessment and an occupational therapy assessment and a nursing assessment and people with stroke were telling us that is completely annoying I hate being assessed by different people who would do the same assessment ask me the same question. They'd all ask, what's your house like? What do you do for a job? We just get asked that once rather than over and over again. We prefer it. Um, people, don't, people with stroke were saying, I don't care so much about my arm function. 
what I want to know is, can I get dressed? Can I feed myself? Can I brush my teeth? That to a person with stroke um, is a different way of, of doing an assessment from the way clinicians were used to doing it. Um, and so this assessment tool had been developed. And so my study was looking at, can we get people to use this tool? And so to inform how we did it, I went into stroke units and I watched how people in the acute wards were determining who needed rehab and who would be referred to someone from the rehab service. Um, and we saw that quite often it was people that the acute team knew would get in, you know, so that they've, if there was someone who was alert, who was able to chat with the staff, who was um, clearly had a problem moving their arm or their leg or clearly had a problem talking but could interact, you know, make eye contact and stuff. And those people would always be referred to rehab and they'd always get in. Um, people who were more severely affected from their stroke, particularly people who were drowsy. So if people were drowsy and not able to swallow, so they might need tube feeding, often those people wouldn't be referred. They wouldn't be seen by someone from a rehab service. Um, and they'd be, you know, even if they lived at home before their stroke, they would often go straight to a nursing home unless they had noisy family. So if they had family who were, you know, I want this person seen by rehab, that would always get it, that would always But without firm advocates, the system wasn't supporting these people being assessed, which is clearly a problem. Um, so I did some work. We, we tried to work out two different ways of helping people to use this assessment tool. So the assessment tool, the premise of the assessment tool is that if a person is not back to their pre-stroke level of function in every single domain, so that covered eating, dressing, swallowing, nutrition, showering and dressing, walking, um, psychological aspects. Um, I can't remember the others, but um, if the person wasn't back to their pre-stroke level of function in all of those domains, then the understanding is that that person would benefit from rehab. And it's not to say that we'd have the rehab services available, but first of all, we needed to get data on who was missing out on getting into rehab who could benefit because we just don't have that data. Um, so everybody who wasn't back to their pre-stroke level of function should be referred to rehab unless they were dying or in a coma or refused. Um, and so we worked with staff to try and make that happen. And then some hospitals, I just went and did an education session and, and showed them this tool and asked them to use it and showed them how other people were using it. Other sites, we went in and did a lot more hands-on, a lot more hand-holding, um, trying to work with them to determine exactly how they would make it used. I sat in with some people as they started to use it and gave them feedback on how they could make it better. Um, help people develop documents, those sorts of things. And, and then we did a, we looked at after the fact had assessments changed. So were more people getting assessed and were the assessments using what we would call the recommended criteria? So were the reasons that we thought were valid for someone not needing rehab? So that either they were back to normal or they were dying or in a coma, then those people wouldn't need rehab, but pretty much everyone else would. Um, and so we found that more people were being assessed for rehab, but still some of these weird criteria were being used that about not needing rehab. So someone, um, people still really clung to the fact that people with very severe strokes who were drowsy 
wouldn't benefit from rehab, um, which isn't, the evidence doesn't support that. The evidence does support that even people with very severe strokes will benefit from rehab. It might not mean that they can live independently in the community, but that might mean that they can um, learn to swallow again and eat food, or it might mean that they can transfer with one person instead of needing a lifting machine. Um, and things like that that are real value add to quality of life. But that um, wasn't necessarily being um, taken on by some of the staff. And the other thing we found is that um, people in the acute hospitals were really reluctant to refer people to rehab services that they knew the rehab services wouldn't be able to take. So particularly the people with very severe stroke, um, that they knew their service was catered to people who were likely to go back home on discharge, you know, likely to be able to walk or transfer with a, a, a family member. And so the people that were more severely affected, they didn't want to refer to rehab. Um, because, you know, part of it was about maintaining their relationship with the rehab service. Um, and so it was really interesting when we have presented this sort of stuff at conferences, people from the rehab services have been really upset because, you know, they, they know it's not best practice and they were really concerned that staff would think that they would get upset if they got, were asked to review all the patients. Um, so it's, it's one of these things that there's a real lack of, I think there's, a, there's always problems with transitions of care, transitions of care from acute to rehab and certainly from hospital to home. Often there's big gaps in, in what people need and what people understand and this is just another one of those um, misunderstandings, I think. Um, and so from here we're still working with people to get the, you know, so we've now embedded use of this assessment tool in part of our national data collection, our national audit that happens every two years, so that for every person that comes in who's had a stroke, they should be assessed for rehab. And if they have an assessment that says the person doesn't need rehab, it must meet one of the four criteria. Um, you know, so if someone has dementia, because that's another thing, is that if somebody had dementia and a stroke, we also know that these people will benefit from rehab. But clinicians tend to think they're not going to. Um, so that's not a valid reason to not have to not be referred to rehab anyway. And so we're trying to we're trying to collect data by by getting this assessment really clear and really transparent. We're trying to get information on how many people need rehab that at the moment in Australia we're not set up to provide. But at the moment, the way that people are being documenting their assessments, it says this person doesn't need rehab because they're too drowsy. Um, so it looks like that person wouldn't benefit from rehab where that's not the case. And so what we've really been doing is fact-finding about what's happening and, and what the understandings are so that we can work to improve the system so that there's better equity of care. What made you choose this area to be the focus of your research? Yeah, so I'm a physiotherapist by background. So I worked clinically in a rehabilitation hospital up until 2012 and I've always been interested in making sure that we did deliver evidence-based practice as part of our rehabilitation um, and when new evidence came to light, being able to set up the department where I worked to be able to deliver that was actually, it was, it was really challenging, it was really rewarding but it was exhausting, it was really hard work. 
So that's where I've kind of come to is, is how can we make that, I think it's really important that we do it, but how do we do it efficiently and how do we do it consistently and how do we help clinicians be able to do it better, set up the system better to support clinicians, but also hand and I'm coming into lately is how can we help consumers um, in some respects know exactly what they should be getting, you know, and would that be an effective strategy if people I think some of the work we've done can people with stroke, particularly early after stroke, have had no idea what's hit them, and it's been a really rough shock. Of course, it has been a you know devastating blow when when someone has a stroke, and if they then don't know anything about what they should be doing, that makes it harder again. And if we improve people's knowledge and and how can we do that in a in a sensitive way at that really traumatic time in their life, does that then take some of that sense of being overwhelmed away if they at least have knowledge about what they can be doing to help themselves recover. And then also then does that help the clinicians make sure that they know, ensure that they're doing what they should be doing. When it comes to this delivery, where do you think the biggest gap is? One of the ideas I'm kind of playing with at the moment is I'm not sure how accountable people are in rehabilitation to deliver evidence-based therapy. So there's a lot of, um, I think it's important that people have used clinical reasoning when they're choosing their therapies between the um, person with stroke and the clinician. I think there's a lot more that could be done to make care person-centred so that the therapy that the person is receiving actually is tailored to the person and the person's needs. There's a lot of work coming out lately that early rehab is very focused on people with walking and not on their arms. And for people with stroke, that that's obviously really important in early days as well, but people need their arms if they can if they if there is an opportunity to get to get more use out of your arm, that would be a really beneficial thing and that tends to be neglected early days. So I think I think involving the person with stroke more in in deciding about how the therapy would be tailored, I think is would be a really beneficial thing. And I think also one thing I'm interested in whether whether or not there should be a level of accountability to make sure that services do provide evidence-based therapy versus traditional therapy, which isn't always evidence-based. I think I think we, we do have good knowledge about what works. I think there's definitely a lot of work that's still to be done and is still in process of, of developing new interventions that are better and more successful in changing someone's function long-term than what we have currently. You know, if we can have... Um, more curative sort of interventions, which we don't have currently, that would be really, really good. But at the moment, with the evidence we have, we still know that people aren't always receiving that like they should be. So I'm going to ask something here. When you say evidence-based, can you explain that for someone who isn't in the medical field? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I do get kind of sidetracked into academic and physio language. Um <laughs> There, there's a lot of research that um, is done and um, with people with stroke to find out what works for most people, what is most effective to, to enhance recovery in most people. And so we know, for instance, that if you are unable to walk, if you practice walking, you will tend to get better at walking. If you practice standing, you'll tend to get better at standing. And we call that task-specific therapy because you're practicing the task that you want to get better at. And there's really good evidence that that works. So we know that if you practice what you want to get better at, 
that ups your chances of getting better at that task. We also know that if you practice more, that tends to be better than, than not practicing as much. There's, more, there's some evidence now that things like robotics are helpful, but that, that is probably because it, it's a way of helping people to practice. And so that's what we talk about evidence. If, if we know that if there's been trials done that show that this is more helpful than something else. So, for instance, doing bed exercises, lifting your leg up and down in bed isn't nearly as helpful at helping you stand as standing up and sitting down on the side of your bed is, is going to be a lot more helpful than doing an exercise in bed lying down. So basically what you're saying is that it's things that you have seen um, that seem to work, you're, you call that evidence-based um, because it's been proven that these things work better. Yeah, and there's, and there's whole levels of evidence. So I'll try not to get too jargony, but if you have a lot of studies involving a lot of people, then that is, and, and they've all shown the same thing, and you put all those studies together, and they're all showing the same thing, you can say that's quite strong evidence. If it's just a little dinky study in my centre with me delivering the therapy and there's been five people with stroke, that's a sign that you might want to look at that further, but you wouldn't call that strong evidence. Thank you for that. You know, we're grateful to the support you provide to our recent experiments to bring researchers and survivors together. Could you share with everyone how it could potentially help you as a researcher? I think one of the perils of being a researcher, especially now that I'm a full-time researcher, so I work at university now, is that I get go off on my tangents of what I think is interesting and get more less and less and less useful. So that if I get really caught up in a research question that actually people with stroke don't care about and clinicians don't care about, then that's a complete waste of any sort of funding I receive. So I think by making sure that I'm in touch with people with stroke and, and similarly I need to keep in touch with clinicians um, to make sure that the work I'm doing is relevant. I think there's no point doing research that people don't care about. And for me, when I worked in health, it was really important that I was value adding to people's lives who I worked with. Similarly, now I'm in research, I need to make sure that I'm continuing to contribute and give back by working on things that are meaningful and relevant. And that's that's why it's so important for me to keep in touch with consumers. Great, because we as stroke survivors love being in touch with physicians and therapists and researchers because that really is the only way that you're going to understand us and that we're going to understand you. So this is like a, a great thing. Are you finding anything interesting in things that you're doing now? I'm learning as I go, and I'm learning more about the theoretical side of you know, I'm going into a bit of an academic sort of exploration at the minute of looking at if I'm working in a centre, if I'm working at one rehabilitation hospital, can I use the same strategies at one centre if I go to another centre, working with different people and different, you know, they might have a different hierarchy of who works there, and what things are the same and what things are different, and how can we figure out what we need to do to help, how do we know what to do to help the therapists deliver the right therapies to their patients. When you go into a centre, what do you need to look at and how do you then tailor, we call it tailoring your therapy, which tailoring your strategies to figure out 
how can I help you best? And if I then go into a different centre and a different centre. So that's things I'm learning about now that I I worked in one centre and I've worked with, you know, I'm quite sheltered really. So I'm learning a lot about the bigger, wider world than, than what I've previously uh, worked in. One of the things I believe that we have talked about is how some people don't get therapy. Some do. There was a big inconsistency in how people get treatment. Is this part of what you're looking at? This is something I have looked at previously. Um, so looking at when someone has had a stroke, how who makes that decision about whether they should even be referred to rehabilitation service? And this came on the back of there was a kind of a, a national statement that said this is how people's rehabilitation needs should be assessed. And so then I was able to kind of go into hospital and say this is what we should be doing, what are we doing and how can we bring it closer to what we should be doing. Because I think a lot of clinicians, and what, what we found out through that research was that a lot of people in the acute stroke wards were seeing someone and they could pick exactly who would go to inpatient rehab because they would be alert and have an arm that didn't work or they might not be able to talk or they might not be able to walk and they would always be referred to rehabilitation but the people that were drowsy um, might not be referred to rehab and they might then go straight to a nursing home where they wouldn't get any rehabilitation and similarly people that were very on the surface mildly affected might not be referred to rehabilitation if they didn't have any obvious signs, but then they might then struggle with going back to work or managing their finances or walking around the shops, those sorts of things. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that those people were at least hooked in with a rehabilitation service who could manage them from the community so that they just didn't fall in that, uh, they didn't get missed. But I think that the, the ongoing concern still is the people with very severe strokes who tend not to be referred to rehabilitation. We don't have services to suit their needs at this point in time in Australia, but meanwhile we don't have information about how many people would benefit from rehabilitation should we offer it to them. And so we don't have any data to be able to then say to the government we would like a rehab service set up for these people because at the moment they it doesn't look like they have rehabilitation needs because of people don't see that they do because they don't fit our services. So it's this whole... So there's really a whole process that that needs to be worked through or looked at to see how people would benefit maybe that wouldn't normally get care there. Yeah. And so, again, there is some work that's been done elsewhere that was, that shows that even people with very severe stroke, they might not be able to live at home, but they might then be able to transfer, they might be able to get in and out of bed with one person helping them rather than need a lifting machine. And they might be able to start eating food and swallowing food rather than be fed through through a tube. So things like that that are real quality of life goals and very meaningful to the people involved doesn't mean that they're going to live at home. But those people tend not to get rehabilitation, but it would be nice if they did. You know, if it was me, I'd, I'd want it. And if it was my mum, I'd want it. So we should be trying to get a system where that is provided? Well, I think, at least for me and things that I've seen, it's important to get therapy for anyone because it does seem to help. You might not get 
50% back or, you know, 100% back. But to even get a little bit of movement or be able to get something out of the refrigerator or whatever, just different things, even just a little bit of therapy, I think has been found, don't you, to even those with severe stroke to help them. Yeah, that's right. And and certainly that's what, that's another thing that the research tells us is that people tend to improve when they get therapy and they tend, you know, some people do improve regardless and they're lucky them, but many people will improve more if they are provided with therapy and even people with very severe stroke. So I think that's something that it would be nice if our clinical practice reflected what we know, but at the moment it doesn't. Yeah. My program of research, you see. (laughs) Well, we want you to get that out there and and get it started. I know you can do this. Um, So the next step, what would you like to find out in the next step? I would like to know, um, one thing I'm really interested in at the moment is looking at how can we provide support to carers of people with stroke. So um, I've got a grant in at the moment with um, with some other researchers and a, and a woman who cares for her husband who's had a stroke. And we're looking at how we can provide information to people um, in that really early stage and, and does that help? And, and how, how can we provide that information in a way that people um, are happy to take on? We know that providing people with a whole lot of pamphlets is, is kind of annoying and people tend not to read them. And so just playing around with different ways of delivering information and then does that work? So that's something I'm looking at. I'm also really interested in um, how do we help people with stroke um, give them the information they need and how can we provide that information in a timely way, in an ongoing way, in a way that people can understand, especially if you're thinking about people who don't read much or who don't speak English very well or their language might have been affected from their stroke. Um, that, you know, it'd be good to look at different ways of providing information that's not just the traditional written pieces of paper. Liz, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. Just so that everyone knows, she is specifically focused on improving health service delivery, particularly to people with stroke. Thanks, Pam. It's been fun. This is an announcement of Stroke Focus. Stroke Focus has opened up its blog section to all its members. It is a professional platform, completely free and very easy to use. It provides instant visibility to know how many views your blog is receiving. At the same time, we are helping members put stories on our podcast. You can get a professional quality radio broadcast to share on Facebook, Twitter, or post on your site. For all our members with aphasia, our audio editors will help make your interview smooth. Do not need any professional equipment. No interview will be published before you review and approve it. There is no charge. Join us at HTTPS colon backslash backslash www.strokefocus.net or write to us at contact at strokefocus.net. Join the growing list of people sharing stories. What you share will make a difference.